0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I do think you need a very strong vision and you need to be able to see that vision and paint it for others. Like our favorite entrepreneur to invest in is someone who is deep in an industry. They know something really well and they understand that opportunity in that industry extremely well. And it's just clear in their mind what that vision for a better version of the industry or the product or you know the process, whatever it is. And that's very clear in their mind. And so you can say that sort of verges on success is inevitable in that they know what that looks like. They know what that future looks like.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out uh, about you by way of a publicist who told me a bit about your story and the work that you've done in venture capital, the startups that you've built, and I was very, very intrigued by all of it. But before we get into that, uh, as you know from having heard the show, I want to start with something that has nothing to do with your work, and that is, uh, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life?
1: Um... You know that's a good question. I, it's I. I sometimes think that um, I'm now a parent, right? <laughs> and yeah. I think that you know how do you learn to be a good parent? And and there is no there is no way to learn to be a good parent. And I think you know we're all bad parents in our own special ways. Um, but I think just the example they said, I think that you can't be a good. The easiest way to be a good parent is to have good examples around you, and um, they left me feeling very loved and supported. Um, And that's kind of a general statement, I think, you know, to kind of go a little bit more specific. um, My mother in particular, she's 80. And um, her generation, I think, was taught to have children and and marry, you know, a man with a stable job, or that's what she took from it. And she had five kids. And um, she, I think, was kind of almost like a, a, like a sort of stereotypical uh, immigrant first generation tiger mom or something who, uh, who really cared about the value of education. And, Mm -hmm. uh, she saw education as sort of the path to, you know, having whatever career you wanted. Um, and so, you know, I really value that I got an amazing education. I think it's been, um, very foundational for me, just my career, but also like my confidence. Yeah.
2: So I always wonder this about kids of immigrants, particularly if you are, you know, uh, one of many siblings and in your case, you know, one of five, uh, where in the birth order do you fall? And how did the advice differ from one kid to another? Because I know that I always said, you know, my sister got away with murder in comparison to what I did. Uh, she did would have gotten me basically grounded for life.
1: Yes. Oh, definitely. I, um, uh so first off, I'm not actually I'm not actually a child of immigrants. It's just that they okay. act that way. <laughs> um, just to be clear, it's just that my mom acts that way. Um okay. but no, I'm number four of five. And oh, wow. and you know, there were different things. So yes, I kind of got away with murder, but um my father at some point, I think when he was having his fifth child, uh, or when we were growing up, he 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 tended to say, no credit, no blame. And I think it, it was his way of saying you know, you can try your hardest to have an athlete or have a, you know, creative, you know, songwriter, a musician, but at some point the children have their own personalities. And, uh, and I think that was, it made them a little bit more relaxed about our upbringing by child four and child five. I was again, number four. Um, but, uh, but yes, the birth order made a big difference, but also our personalities did. And so, I know that um, my sibling, who's number three and number five, the, the two on either side of me, are um, incredibly smart and athletic and talented and never had to work very hard and kind of always got A-minuses and were always sort of happy. Mm-hmm. And uh, my parents always told them to work a little harder <laughs> because they didn't really <laughs> like, they just didn't like, you know, it was just everything was easy for them. And so they kind of skated through life. Um, my parents were always like, you know, try to light a little fire under their um, butts. And and for me, um, I think I always got an A and worked really hard and cared a whole lot, you know, especially as a child when everything was a big deal. And they always told me kind of to, you know, A minuses are fine, like chill out a bit. B pluses are fine. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I think the the advice varied by child.
2: Well, A-minuses are fine and B-pluses is are okay. Is something you will never hear from an Indian parent. Like I remember, <laughs> I remember asking him, he said, you got straight A's in high school, didn't you? I was like, yeah. Uh, that that was just not a negotiable thing. If you brought home a B, it was just like, what the hell happened? Why did you get it? <laughs>
1: okay. I actually, as soon as I said that, I was like, I don't know whether B-pluses were fine. I think an A-minus was fine. I'm not sure about the B-plus. But it was also, that was unique to me. It was not true of my siblings. That was unique to me because... I really, I, I was more at risk for dropping out of school for being like a hot mess um, because I was so driven and I cared so much about, I, you know, and I don't know where it came from, but I, I was passionate about sort of about being competitive and winning. And, and a lot of that came out in sports, but um, mm-hmm. some of it came out in the academic side too. Wow.
2: What did you learn about social dynamics and human relationships and interaction from being part of such a big family, especially being four out of five?
1: Um, You know, I think that (laughs) not to judge other people a bit. (laughs) um, And uh, so I'm the fourth and my three older siblings all had three children before I had three children. I now have three children. Um, And, you know, I think very highly of my three older siblings. Um, they're all people I admire, and yet when I before I had children, I would watch them parent and I would think, "Oh, you know, she's too strict and no fun and and he's too <laughs> and he's too lax and you know just indulges and goes to target with his children and buys them whatever they want. You know I have these ways of judging by siblings. I hope they never listen. <laughs> um, but what you learn is actually um, there is no right way of doing things or living your life and um And it, you know, it kind of all works out in the end. So there's, I think I kind of learned to be. A little less judgmental. Although, you know, that took some time. I'm still working, still work in progress on that.
2: Well, I think that all of us have that sort of degree of, okay, you know what, I am definitely not going to do this one thing that my parents did. And I was, I was talking to my best friend who we had here as a guest on the podcast. And we we're talking about, you know, the fact that he has a 15 year old teenager and, and a newborn. And I asked him, I said, you know, do you find yourself doing things that you swore that you would never do with, that you saw your, your own parents do? And he said, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, yes, there are days He said that, you know, when we were growing up, our parents kind of refused to answer the question of why, whenever Mm. they told us anything, there was no, it was just like, I'm the adult, don't ask why. And he said that sometimes he does end up finding himself having to have those conversations (laughs) with his daughter, who as a teenager continually challenges him. Uh, You obviously, you know, chosen the entrepreneurial path. So I wonder two things. One, what if any career advice did your parents give you about making your way in the world? And, uh, as a parent, and I don't know how old your your uh, your kids are, but um, how has that influenced the kind of way you think about you know giving your kids career advice? Particularly because of the fact that you've had a, a career path where we know as entrepreneurs as creatives that you're signing up for a life where nothing is guaranteed.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I'm not sure. In fact, I was going to say I'm not sure what career advice they gave me, um, but actually, that it, itself is an answer, which is they didn't give much. Career advice um so much for for a few for a few reasons um I mean they gave some <laughs> they were full yeah. of advice and i and I liked getting their advice in fact um but they gave me values very much so and so um my dad is a professor uh, and my mother was a nurse when the five of us were going through private school and and they cared a lot about sending us to a good school, which in our case ended up being private school um and they really never cared about money. And, uh, you know, my dad's a professor, but we didn't have a ton of money having five kids in private school. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing I, I did take from them was like, there was never a pursuit of money. Like we drove a Pinto and we grew, uh, had a nice garden in the backyard and we were very happy in kind of doing our thing. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting now because I am a venture capitalist, which, um, sounds to me very much like someone who would be pursuing, you know, returns and, and fame and fortune or something, but that was definitely not a value they had, um, or that, that I took from them. It wasn't one they, they gave us. Um, yeah. they did give me different levels of different advice. Like I, I, and usually it was kind of towards the stable job direction. <laughs> um, and, and even, you know, I, I think, maybe similar to, to sort of a traditional immigrant parent. Like there was a, you know, be a doctor. Uh, I wanted yeah. to be a math teacher at one point. Um, I thought maybe I would be, feel very fulfilled teaching math to high school students, especially high school girls. I was good at math and computer science. And I thought maybe I should, you know, teach math and computer science. Um, and I still think that. But my mom said, well, you, you, you will be able to do that. You know, I think... Um, you, you, that door won't be closed to you. If you go and excel at math and computer science um, at Google, they will still take you at the high school to teach computer science um, to high school kids. So um, so I think she was definitely about, um, you know, being ambitious in in our careers. And, and there was definitely an expectation that we were all going to college and yeah. we were all going to be, I don't remember, like national merit scholars, I think was her <laughs> thing.
2: So- well, uh, I- I can relate. I mean my dad's a professor as well. So I, I get that. You know, it's oh. pretty, there's no question as to whether we're ever gonna go to college.
1: But but here was the thing. Like my dad's a professor, my mom was a nurse, neither of them knew anything about business. And so they're really if you're a, a child professor, like they had all this advice on like how to do research and how to do primary research, how to do secondary research. But like I never like what a management consultant did, what a venture capitalist did, what an investment banker, any of that was completely um opaque. And, and I didn't, you know, no one sort of explained what different careers looked like.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as an investor, you know, the reason that this comes to my mind as an investor and a parent, you know, you probably invest in, in young founders. And I remember this was literally, we raised our first round of venture funding and my mom was talking to me about, you know uh, arranging dates with you know <laughs> friends of theirs and they're like well we're going to have to tell them that your income is unstable and you know all this other shit and I was like wow you guys have really undersold me like you're not going to mention the fact that I wrote two books with a publisher I raised a round of venture funding and my mom said don't get mad but have you thought about getting a job I was like wait a minute we just raised a round of investor money like really uh, so I wonder as an investor what do you you know a lot of parents are listening to this you know some of them probably have kids who are going to go out and follow this sort of crazy entrepreneurial path, particularly there are, because there are people who (laughs) listen to our show. What advice do you have for the parents of the types of people that you invest in?
1: Hmm. Advice for the parents. I mean, the good news is I think that entrepreneurship has become a career path or or something. I mean, I don't know, (laughs) as in it's increasingly something that is you know it is you can study it in school you can study in undergrad entrepreneurship you can then get an MBA that focuses on entrepreneurship um you can learn it as a um as a skill if you will um and so i, I think that you know I, I so i think there's that side of things on the other side of things um, it's, it, you know, from where I sit, like it is an intense, incredible amount of learning. It sets you up to be so much more wise and successful in whatever you do next because you've been drinking from the fire hose for however many number of years. Um, and that sort of learning is invaluable. Um, and I think increasingly, you know, your traditional employers, um, I worked at Google and did, you know, endless numbers of hiring committee hours. Um, increasingly employers recognize the value of um, not only, you know, let's say launching a product, but launching a company. And Mm -hmm. so um, I don't know if that's quite advice for the parents, but um, increasingly, I think there's great examples of people who are entrepreneurs and, um, you know, can also have families and have reasonably steady incomes. But like you said, like things like looking at rounds of funding, you know, I tell people when they're applying for jobs, like, is this a well funded company? How many months of runway? And things are much more stable if you've got 12, 18 months of runway in the bank than if yeah. you don't. So, so there's some practical things you can do.
2: Yeah, for sure. I guess the you know, other part of this I wonder is um, yeah, I mean, there, there's no question, like, you're, you're signing for a lot of concern, but it's funny you talk about how valuable this is because I realize now after 10 years of unmistakable creative, like, I was pretty much unemployable after I finished business school. And I realize now that if I did go to choose and apply for a job, I actually have so much more value that I can bring that actually is tangible from having spent 10 years working on this project. Uh, and I, I developed skills I would have never developed in any other capacity.
1: Yeah. And I look for that when I look at people's resumes. And, um you know, I I used to sort of be thinking, okay, how many years um, of experience does someone have in the workforce? Like what year did they graduate college? Just as a starting point. So I understand like how many years of experience and then, okay, well they graduate from, from undergrad 10 years ago, but then they did get an MBA. So I kind of discount that in my mind, instead of two years, that's like one year's worth of like work experience but then like founder of a startup that, you know, raised a series A or something. I'm like, Oh, they have, you know, that's like a plus one in my mind. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, you do learn so much. And, and, and more importantly, maybe to me is I think so many people like myself and maybe like you um, don't know what career direction is right for them. Mm -hmm. And So much of startups, um, you get exposed to so much and there's so much work to do that you kind of can naturally gravitate to things. And I've seen so many people who thought that they were, um, you know, a business, you know, financial forecaster who actually turn into business development people um, because their skills kind of emerge in the course of building a startup. And so then when they actually go back into the work, like the normal workforce or something, um... They're just more settled in knowing the the right, like they have the right skill match for what job is actually good for them.
3: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns.
4: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news,
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny because I had David Epstein here uh, who wrote a book called Range, which was you know, talking about the power of being a, a you know, generalist in a specialized world. And he said that often you know, um, finding a match is really one of those things that really determines your ability to succeed. And he said, you know, match quality is such a huge thing. And yet I feel like so often you know, when you go to a job, it's like, oh, you know, these are the bullet points on my resume. These are the jobs that I can apply for. And as a result, you end up with sort of this mismatch uh, between talent and environment. I'm 100% sure that's what happened to me because I was a creative person who never got to have a creative job and as a result had just piss poor performance in the job world. Um, So one, how do we deal with that? Like, how do you avoid having that happen? Particularly because that's kind of how we hire right out of college. The other thing that I wonder about is... You know, you and I both come from you know fairly educated backgrounds. We have parents who are college professors. I think that with that inevitably comes a sort of cognitive bias towards people who have degrees. Um, like my roommate always jokes with me, he's like, "Oh, you think this person's more credible because they're a doctor?" I was like, "I'm Indian, of course I think that." Like I've been talking that my entire life, but particularly in the valley and, and places like Google. I mean, I was a Berkeley undergrad, so I know that the sort of filter is oh you have the Ivy League checkbox. And I think that cognitive bias is there. How, how do you deal with that in, in the world of hiring? Like, how do people overcome it if they're the ones trying to get hired? And how do other people make sure they're not letting their cognitive biases dictate their choices and overlooking potentially extraordinary people?
1: Uh, so many different pieces to that. Um, you know, one piece is sort of your classic best practices, I think, for hiring, uh, again, <laughs> filtered through me is that you really want to identify what, what success looks like in 18 months for the role. And then what are the skills that the person needs um, to, to have success in that role in 18 months, let's say. And so I being very clear and crisp about what those skills are um, ahead of time, skills or attributes that you're looking for, and you can't have a list of you know 100 of those, it needs to be like four or five that you're looking for, um, and being really clear on that upfront, I think helps you then sort of filter people based on are they a fit for the skills that you've identified, um, and and the skill you know is something like the ability to scale or uh, sell or um, someone who's gone through rapid growth before, and it's not you know went to got this X Y Z degree or another. Right. Um, I also think that kind of to the what we we're talking about with startups is. Your ability to show why you are qualified to do the work—it um, helps if you've done, you know, some of that work before. Which is why something like a startup that exposes you to a lot of work um, uh, is is great because you can sort of say, "Look, I have done something like this before," um, and then mm-hmm. when you're applying to the right job, you've actually um, you know what you're talking about in terms of you know, here's what I would do to be successful. Here's what I do in my first three months, six months, 18 months. And you can actually, you know, speak credibly about that. Um, and then, you know, for me, uh, I am extremely educated and look, my mom, my mom likes to say I look good on paper. Um, (laughs) and at some point, yes, like I don't need another brand name, whatever. Um, But, uh, but I do vet when I look at resumes, which again, I don't look at resumes anymore. I think, um, resumes stopped being, you know, how I hire, but, um, you know, the, the people who we talk about distance traveled and the people who've had interesting narratives, um, it's much more interesting that you ended up at, you know, getting your MBA. If you dropped out of high school, that that's an interesting story. Um, Mm -hmm. um, and someone who's shown that they can persevere or something versus like, you know, we all went to Stanford. Yeah. Great. You went to Stanford, you know, exciting.
2: <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Well, let me give you a counter example to this, because this is something that I've, I've wondered, you know, we hired a community manager sometime right after we raised our round of funding and, you know, our investors gave us a sort of a job description. They're like, okay, do this, this, and this. And everybody who met the job description, like people who applied, I was like, this is really, I thought we would have a much easier time. So I actually reached out to one of our listeners um, and she said, Trini, I'm a civil engineer with a PhD. I don't know shit about social media. Or building community. And she has been hands down the best community manager I've ever seen. Uh, it's been remarkable what she's done because I, my thought process was like, okay, you're a civil engineer with a PhD, you're smart, and you know how to solve problems. That's pretty mm-hmm. much all we need. The rest of this you can learn um, with no experience. And she was a thousand times better than candidates who actually, you know, on paper matched the job description. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, sort of like being an investor there's a lot of, uh, when we invest, that is a gut driven, uh, decision where, yeah. um, but that, that kind of goes with the distance traveled aspect, which is if I've seen that you can solve problems in other realms, mm-hmm. like you excelled, you excelled in doing X, you excelled in doing Y, um, then, and, and so it's, to me, it's like, oh, you were able to do different things and, do well at them, then here's another different thing that you'll probably do well at. So yeah. you could, you could argue that that's the, that was the profile that you're looking for. Someone who's a great problem solver or, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, well,
2: let's do this. Let's shift gears. Let's talk about the trajectory that has actually led you to where you're at today as an investor. Cause I know that you've built startups, you've worked at Google. Um, what in the world led you down this path? Like how did you end up where you're at today?
1: Um, so I, I mean, strictly speaking, I grew up in LA. I then went to Stanford and, uh, thought that maybe I'd study math, uh, because, you know, this is the nineties. It was a little before computer science, but then it was very clear that computer science was like, just, just going crazy. Like it was so much innovation coming out of computer science companies were launching. It was just dynamic place. So I ended up studying computer science. Um, so went to Stanford, studied computer science, ended up going to Harvard to get my MBA, went to Google. It all sounds like very I don't know linear, but in truth, like when I went to Stanford, the first thing I did was I dropped out of Stanford um, at at the end of my freshman year um, because I just couldn't handle it. Um, You know, uh, as I said, like I was really driven, but I, um, you know, I I just wasn't mature, and I um, mostly I just got really out of whack, um, sort of emotionally and led my got into just a bad depression um and ended up dropping out and thought I was dropping out of Stanford. But um if you go back a semester later, which I did, then they just say that you stopped out for a semester and you went back and graduated. Um, and so, you know, as my mother says, I look at it on paper, but there's actually there were lots of sort of twists and turns in that path. Um, mm-hmm. So so yeah, so I went to Stanford um, say computer science was part of a startup that IPO'd in March of 2000, right before the whole bubble burst. Um, so that kind of led me to go to business school and, um, went to business school and, um, was good. Got exposed to a lot of, you know, the business things, but then was pretty sure after spending two years in Boston that I was very eager to move back to California and be back in tech. So, um, I finished, my MBA and didn't have a job and everyone else had a job. And, um, I was like, I'm going to move to, to San Francisco and see what's there. And, um, actually it was my mother who sent me the job description for Google, um, which, you know, people think that because I went to Stanford, um, and Google at that time was still very heavy on Stanford grads. Um, but actually they were, they had an advertisement on the Google homepage that said, um, you're brilliant. We're hiring. My mother, of course, sent it to me. It was like, you're brilliant. And they're hiring. It's perfect. <laughs> so, um, so, so in that ended up being great because, um, I joined in 2002, which is a couple years pre IPO. Um, and really just, uh, there were 500 people when I joined and I just felt like I got a front row seat to so much, um, just so many amazing people and so many big decisions. And, um, and you know, I got to see a lot of sort of how How Silicon Valley evolved over a decade um, by sort of sitting in the Google seat, which was, you know, I want to say it was the center of it all. But like, you know, there was a there was a lot of great people and great things going on. So I stayed for a long time. And then I started my own company in 2013.
2: Wow. So. There's one thing that uh, when we think about starting your own company, I never forgot this because uh, it was something that I remember hearing Chris Saka say, and I've heard him say it in interview after interview after interview. He said, when you look at founders, I was like, what is the one thing they all have? And he said, every founder that we've talked to that has been a success believes that their success is inevitable. Now, as an investor, do you find that to be the case that that's the level of conviction that everybody has? And and do you think that that's something that somebody can cultivate or is that just something that's inherent?
1: (laughs) It's interesting. So um, I know Chris really well. So Chris and I shared an office for probably like five years of my Google tenure, and we started all these projects together. So it's funny to hear him say that. So he believes. Let me. He believes that all founders think their success is inevitable, and yet I would say about Chris that one of the things that I think drove Saka very like strongly was almost. Um, I hope he's okay with me saying this. Um, almost an insecurity. And, uh, I mean, he was brilliant. And so maybe I, I don't think he believed that his success was inevitable, but, <laughs> uh, maybe he did, but, um, you know, he had a little chip on his shoulder. I think that he didn't go to an Ivy league school. Now I'm blanking on where he went to school. It wasn't like a bad school at all. Um, and I think he had something to prove. Um, and, Maybe he be, he believed he had it in himself, like he believed highly in himself, but he was also extremely insecure, which maybe is part part of um, a, a founder's success. Um, my general thought on entrepreneurs is that they take all shapes and sizes, and I don't believe that all founders that are successful have any one sort of trait. Um, and and I think that maybe they're. Maybe a decade ago, there used to be a little bit more of a formula a formula to being a successful entrepreneur yeah. um, or not a formula, but just like it was more constrained. There were fewer options um, because you kind of had to look a certain way or do a certain thing in order to raise money because people were expecting you to have you know, a certain characteristics. Increasingly, like when we invest, we talk about different personas, or we don't spend a lot of time trying to classify personas, but like, um, but, you know, we can have a really nerdy founder who um, is maybe soft spoken, but just has nailed the technology. We can have someone who's great at sales. Um, And I don't, I don't think anymore that there's one certain type and that everyone has to believe that their success is inevitable. Mm -hmm. and, And it also depends on whether you're talking about your personal success, or the success of your personal idea, because those are a little, those are a little different concepts, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I do think you need a very strong vision and you Mm -hmm. need to be able to see that vision, um, and paint it for others. Like our favorite entrepreneur to invest in is someone who is deep in an industry. They, they know, they know some, they know something really well and they understand that opportunity in that industry extremely well. And and so it's, it's just clear in their mind what that vision for um, a better version of the industry or the product or, you know, the process, whatever it is. And that's very clear in their mind. And so you can say that sort of verges on success is inevitable um, in that, like, they know what that looks like. They know what that future looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah,
2: long answer there. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, it's funny you you talk about traits and sort of personas because, like, I you know as the guy who got fired from every job I ever had, never imagined a million years I'd be a person to go raise a seed round from somebody, and I did, and I was just like, oh wow, I had no idea I'm capable of this. Uh, so th- that's when. They, so you mentioned traits. Um, I want to come back to traits because I think there's probably more there. But you also mentioned insecurity. Uh, and I, I can tell you, I think that to some degree, part of this was driven by bosses who told me I wasn't you know, interested in controlling my own destiny and things like that, where I was just like, yeah, screw you. I'm going to prove you wrong. I was like, you're a guy who's worked at the same company for 20 years and you're telling me I'm not interested in controlling my own destiny. Uh, but you know, like I said, it was like this sort of chip on my shoulder, but I also realized there was a point at which I had to let that go if I was going to really channel my energy into this in a healthy way. Um, so what that makes me wonder about is... You know, as founders, as people who build things, as creatives, it, one of the big challenges we face is not letting our self worth become intertwined with the results that our business is producing or the success of our. You know, endeavor, you know, it's like, oh, I'm a less of, the, of a person because my book didn't hit some bestseller list or somebody else's audience is bigger than mine. And so one of the the unfortunate byproducts of that is that we've had basically what is a mental health crisis in, you know, sort of the, the startup community that, you know, I think people like Jerry Colon are doing amazing work to address this. But I feel like it takes an Aaron Schwartz story for us to say, oh, wait a minute, this is a serious problem. And then we kind of write about it, we talk about it, and then it goes back to being you know, um, just something that we know is there, but we don't address. And as somebody who is an investor, how do you counsel people through that? Because I mean, there's no, especially now, particularly in the time of pandemic, like we were like, wow, our runway is shorter than we thought. Like I had a temporary meltdown um, until I realized, look, like, okay, this isn't as bad. But how do you counsel people through this aspect of the things?
1: Right. Um, it- and especially, I mean, because I, I told you a little, like part of my story is also having my own, um, I, I pretty much have had to drop out of life twice myself. Um, so I, I, it's definitely a, a topic I care about cause, um, cause I've sort of lived it myself. Um, you know, I think for me, my, my, um, I have a new favorite word. It's anecdata, my anecdata, um, my, my N of one, if you will, um, was what really helped me get through my own tough times was being able to talk about what I was going through, um, a- as opposed to having it sort of be a secret or be something that I felt like I carried myself, um, and then uh, to be able to be willing to accept the help of others. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to have others then be around me who were there to really give me the help that I needed. Um, and so, you know, I, I know that sounds very simple, but I would start with the being able to talk about what's going on. And yeah. um, and for me, it does diffuse things. And I know that about myself, which is keeping my mouth open, talking about what's going on does help me diffuse the, the, the severity of it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, to give you a quick example from my startup journey, um we had to do a riff at one point where we had to fire a bunch of people, not for performance related reasons. Um and uh it was it was really causing me a, a huge amount of anxiety and I wasn't sleeping and I I just I couldn't sort of be my usual self. Um and and it weighed on me for many weeks, and then we started talking about it, um, and we talked about it with our board in particular, and it then took all the edge off. Um And, you know, then we came up with like an action plan for how to do this in a a thoughtful, caring way. Um, And, and I mean, it now seems like sort of a small thing. Lots of startups go through rifts, but, um, but just the act of talking about it helped immensely. Um, So I think that's, that is some of it. Um, I also, for me, not that this helps, but it is the silver lining, which is having gone through a lot of. Hard things that were hard for me, you know like the the hardship of dropping out of Stanford may not sound like hardship to someone who's struggling to feed their family, but for me, it was extremely hard um extremely dark um, but having gone through hard things has made me a better person and has made it much easier to go through subsequent things in life so um so I will at least share that it's um, it has lots of silver linings to get through the other side, but you do have to um, get through the other side uh. My mother's expression is chop wood, carry water, which is sort of the, you have to just keep putting one foot in front of the other until it gets better, even if you don't believe that it gets better.
2: Uh, so one thing I wonder is talking about it, do you think it's easier to talk about it as a woman than it is as a man? Uh, you know, yes. because <laughs> So that's you know, the reason being, I think that men are encouraged to sort of put on this sort of superhero mindset. Like I am very cognizant of the fact that if I'm going through something difficult, I'm very mindful about who I talk about it with. Um, I basically do not make any public uh, assertions because I'm always like, oh, everything I do now is a reflection of my literary agents, my publishers, my investors. So I'm like, okay, this fundamentally changes your behavior. In fact, I remember writing about this, like my first six months of of, you know, like dealing with venture funding and how different it was and how basically you have this sort of bizarre combination of passion and stoicism, because you still need the passion that got you to this place in the first place and that willingness to take risks. But you also have to be able to have a sort of logical and analytical approach to everything that you didn't quite have before.
1: Yeah, um, it is easier. I think I, 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 I do believe that it is easier for women in, in some ways. But I think that finding the channels that are the easiest is, uh, is, you know, the, it's because it's the, it's the way that has worked for me. And there have been times where, um, I've seen this where, you know, an unwillingness to talk, um, maybe sort of merited it. Like you may get judged, right? Like who knows, like you may get judged for being weak or for being fired or for being, um, insecure or whatever. And so, um for me, like having a career coach has been um a tool that I have used. And I've also seen sort of I had a bunch of co-founders who were all men and we had we all uh had different career coaches and extremely valuable to have um resources um the career coach and also we used our board a lot, not quite for therapy, but um to talk through the hard things about our startup. Um mm-hmm. and so you know, it is it may be that there are certain channels that are easier than others. But, you know, but at the same time, I think the world is moving to um, liking, trusting, caring about people who are authentic to who they are and people who share the things that are going well. And it used to be that, you know, we wanted everyone to sort of wear a suit, look perfect, um, not acknowledge that their children might jump into their podcast at any moment. And now, um, you know, I think there's a blending of sort of our, our polished work selves with our at home, regular selves that, um, I think that blending is, is also leading to sort of see the more authentic, fuller picture of people. And I think that's helping.
2: Yeah. Well, let's do this. Let's talk specifically about how a startup goes from being sort of, you know, in this phase of a couple of founders working together to, you know, sort of becoming this like massive empire that ends up, you know, leading to an IPO. Um, so how does that actually happen and what actually prevents people, um, from getting there? Like, how do people screw this up too? (laughs)
1: Um, I, I think, I think it's actually less that you screw it up and more that everything has to work perfectly to actually get there from startup to IPO. Um, so, um, how, how does it get going? Um, as I said, I think one of the best ways to start is to have uh, to be starting something that is your life passion, regardless of how the startup journey goes. And so, um, you know, the pitches I see, it's you know, someone who um, saw the need at their daycare center for a better CRM system, and they've had three kids go through the, the daycare center versus someone. Who owns a franchise of ten daycare centers and is spending their whole time and has done this for twenty years running daycare centers and now decides to build software for themselves that then turns into a company? Um, and there's a subtle difference there, but having having a startup is more like uh, an extension of who you are and um, what you know you want to spend decades on because it's you know the journey from startup to IPO is. Um, probably a decade long. And so mm-hmm. it's not something to enter into lightly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, there's a sort of traditional path, which is, okay, you re- raise a friends and family round of funding. Um, my stage where ten one ten invests, m- m- where our fund invests is sort of someone's second seed round um, before raising a Series A. And when I was raising money for shift, there was a seed round and then a Series A. And now there's at least two rounds, I would say, before Series A. Um, and then you, you know, do go through your march up and down Sand Hill Road and go to the Monday partner meeting. Um, uh, and then now Sand Hill Road is um more in San Francisco. Um, but uh and 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 more all over the country, which is great. Um, yeah. but um but you know, it's not a linear path ever. As I said, like our our journey of going seed series a then we did a riff and then we did a series b um and so you know it's it's rarely sort of a a, even even ideas that take off they sometimes take off um and then plateau
2: yeah as i'm learning from having done the seed round and and how that different this is than i thought it would be but uh One thing that I wonder, you know, you mentioned a decade and there's something that I always remember. And I always give this advice to people who want to write books, who want to start anything. Uh, You may have heard it. Sam Altman did a, a class at Stanford, basically, which was literally like Y Combinators Incubator at Stanford. And they made the whole thing available as a podcast. And I go through it at least once a quarter because I think the advice in there is invaluable. But one thing that always stayed with me that he said, uh, and he tells us to founders, is that your greatest competitive advantage is a long-term view, and he defines that as 10 years. And I think that in a world where you can go from idea to execution in record time, people expect to have success just as quickly. what do you, what do you say to that how do you get people out of that mindset because I, I do think that often you know people will say oh i've been working on this blog for a year and nobody reads it it's like dude do you have any idea how long most people have been working on their projects that actually have an audience
1: yeah and but i you know the 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 the, the other piece of this that's really important is that one of the biggest advantages that startups have versus big companies is their ability to move fast and so you need the long-term view, but you need to be constantly moving as fast as you can, because what happens to most startups that don't make it, the number one thing, well, probably the number one thing, is they run out of money. Um, yeah. And it's not because um, there's often uh, startups that I see where they're they're actually starting to go. Like, they're starting to really have some traction. Things are picking up. You know, they're finding their voice. They're finding their audience. Um, but, but, but so what, you know, if, if you run out of money, you run out of money. Yeah. Um. And so uh, the, the need to move fast is sort of inherent in the, the, the way our current sort of venture startup uh, process works. Um. And my lesson of shift was we moved fast on everything. And mm-hmm. I learned just to move faster than I'd ever moved on just launching and iterating and getting feedback, except for on people. And I'm, um, I am a believer on not. Trying to move too fast on everything as it relates to HR and people, um, and so I, I don't disagree with with Sam's advice on the long term view, right. but I just think that needs to be balanced with within that long term view, you're moving extremely quickly, and if one thing is is um, is working but um, or not working, the the need to 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 tweak things, to play with things, to, to listen to customer feedback. Because you can look at the trajectory you're on and if you're growing, you know, whatever percent quarter over quarter and that percent is not fast enough to either get you to your next round of funding um, or to sort of show the explosive growth that will be needed for your next round of funding, um, you can't just sort of, you know, you need to sort of map out where you're going to be cash wise and where you're going to be growth wise and make sure that that gets you to the next milestone.
2: Trust me, I'm learning all of that firsthand. Um, I spend more time doing cash flow analysis than I ever thought I would be doing. It's yeah. kind of like I'm calculating runway almost every other day. Um, I think that that's one thing I realized was that you know you go from being sort of this creative person with this idea to suddenly when you have somebody else's money on the line, your thought process differs quite a bit. It's almost like you still have the idealism, but you also balance it with a lot of reality that I think is often missing from a lot. Yeah, of people. I mean.
1: If- when people call it a friends and family round, I don't know where you raised your money from, but I raised it from friends and and a couple family members, but really mostly friends who I asked for money. Um, mm-hmm. And these were, you know, my Stanford friends who um, I took money from. And yeah, your calculation when it's a hobby project is very different than when you've taken money from your friends. And, yeah. um, you know, you really want to pay your friends back. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, And they took a bet on you and all of that. So absolutely. There's a different level of intensity, which again can lead to this, you know, when you talk about getting so caught up in your identity as your startup, it's also, I mean, it's not just about, you know, for your own personal glory or, or, you know, success. It's also because you feel obligation towards others um, Mm -hmm. to to be successful And, and hiring people, you then have a huge obligation towards. So, um, So yeah, finding other ways of staying grounded, super important. And I managed to have three children while having a startup, which kept me very, um, at least not able to focus entirely on the startup, but to have other things that were more important to me was useful.
2: Well, speaking of which, I mean, I know one of the things that um, I remember looking, you know, when I was looking through your bio is, is, what are the challenges do you think of being a woman, particularly in a male-dominated environment? And what would you want men to understand about the challenges that female founders face? Because I, there's one story I remember that Paul Graham told uh, in that Stanford class where he said that, you know, he tweeted a graph of a startup that was having explosive growth and it was from a female founder, but he never mentioned that it was a female founder. And immediately he got everybody's attention. But he also said he wondered if it would have been the same if it had been a female founder.
1: Hmm. Um. So, you know, I think there's been a huge amount of change. The the uh, the change I've felt in um being female in a fairly male dominated um world or industry, <laughs> um, uh, it just things of uh, the tenor of every of of a lot of things that have changed from where I'm sitting Um, in that uh, I I, I was chatting on on my podcast um, with Jesse Draper, who used to, um, she did, she hosted a talk show um, that was a tech talk show and she got just constantly criticized for um, wearing pink and wearing skirts and being sort of Valley girl ish. Um, And I think that, now people are, women and men are, um, conscious of, um, noticing people who are, um, underrepresented minorities or, or just people who are, you know, not the most assertive, um, not, you know, the voices that are sort of banging the table the loudest. And, um, and, and I, I see in just all sorts of different regards that I think things have gotten better and changed. Um, for me, the 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 thing that has sort of stuck with me is the mentorship that I've received, and and that I feel now um, has um, has come a lot of times in small acts of kindness um, or thoughtfulness that people have displayed that have really touched me and emotionally, but also I think changed you know had real impact on my career and and i think that there's one i think people are just sort of trying to to be more thoughtful and helpful but also i think that it's not always a um one to one mentorship relationship where people who i barely know have you know said something done something that's really had these um butterfly wing effects on on me and so i try to remember that sort of when i go through my life if there's something i can do and say to be helpful, I I try to squeeze in like an extra an extra call with someone who's looking for advice, or um, you know just try to try to be helpful when people are are looking for for help in one form or another.
2: Yeah. So I mean, you've seen probably the widest range of, of you know successes and failures. I mean, having been at Google, having been an investor, one thing I wonder is how much of this you know this is like a Guy Raz question that he asks everybody at the end of how I built this, like how much of sort of becoming an Airbnb or a unicorn of like a stripe or somebody is luck and how much of it is, um, just pure hard work and execution.
1: Hmm. Um, I think that there is being positioned to be able to take advantage of the luck that comes your way. Um, and, and so being positioned there, meaning you have the skills, you have the, background, but also you have your eyes wide open to opportunity and then take advantage of it. I mean, that's the story of my career has definitely been, um, I I had nothing planned ahead of time. I was not aiming to be a venture capitalist. I was um, very much uh, trying to understand where the opportunity in the world was. Um, And so, so I think it's both.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I remember even when we raised our round, there was basically radio public started a venture fund called pod fund. And I remember like looking in the Facebook group that day, like, you know, podcasters were just yapping about it and talking about it and, you know, talking about what they would do with the money. I literally went and filled out an application. I was like, this is what I'm going to do with the money. This is how I'm going to use it. This is what we're going to do. It was like, you know, and it was kind of amazing, like how fast it all happened. But I realized the difference was very simple. I didn't sit around talking about it. I instead went and acted on it.
1: Yeah. Well, and my training is as a product manager and a product manager, one of the main jobs of a product manager is say, what does the user want? What does the user need? And I feel like I've internalized that into some of how I run my life, which is what is the world telling me that it needs or wants that sort of a fit for my skills um, and, you know, I think I sort of not quite stumbled into being a venture capitalist, but it was a very good fit for what I felt like there was a need in the market um, and it played well to my strengths. But understanding, you know, not trying to, to always force a rock up a hill or swim upstream or whatever, mm-hmm. um, but really finding those opportunities where there's big tailwinds.
2: Mm-hmm. So one thing I wonder is, you know, when somebody is in a startup where they run out of money. I mean, you see a situation where it's like, okay, that's it. The money's out. Like we're closing the doors. Uh, how do people recover a sense of identity after that? Especially when their sense of identity has been intertwined with something for so long. Cause like after doing this for 10 years, I think I would definitely have like a few months if, if that actually happened, God forbid, um, where I really wouldn't know what to do with myself.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I haven't, been doing this long enough to have a whole lot of companies that have a- had to sort of shut down as dramatically. I think it is often a bit of a transition. Um, like I have seen a couple people who've, um, you know, the money doesn't just, you know, it's not like it goes to the, from a hundred to zero all at once. And so I've yeah. seen people who maybe have picked up consulting jobs that are tangentially related. Um, maybe they've carried on with the idea, but, um, I, you know, just on their own as more of a, more of a hobby. Um, I think it, each situation is really different, um, for each person and, um, but it's hard, right? I, I, I do think we get so caught up in work as our identity, which is why it's nice. Um, it, it is nice if you have other things outside of work that are also you know, that you can cultivate so that, you know, as I said, like I got so caught up in work, but then, you know, I had a one-year-old who was trying to drown himself in the bath and all of a sudden that became, you know, a more important focus. And it was useful for me to have things that balanced me or else I would have just been a hundred percent nothing but my startup all all the time.
2: Yeah. Um, so one thing I wonder, um, you know, as somebody who has been successful as a startup, you've you know, grown to start to the point where it's scaling, leader, venture capitalist, how has your perspective on money and wealth changed, um, both with, you know, the success you've experienced and with age?
1: Oh, well, I mean, the, 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 the thing that I end up thinking about the most, uh, a few things. So one the thing I think about the most is how is our society gonna, um, get back on an upward trajectory Um, and the the thing that as i've sort of just grown older and seen more things is is just we don't have the privilege to be doing what we're doing unless um, we are looking at the bottom half of society and finding solutions to make our society as a whole works Um, and it's okay with me if that's for selfish reasons like if that's because we don't want to end up in a society where we're all living in gated communities and that's a selfish reason to to try to help everyone come along. Great, um, if if it's a much more altruistic thing, which is nobody should be unable, you know, no no mother should be sitting there saying, "I want to be able to feed my family, but I can't." Um, so, so I think just the awareness of of um, what I care about in the world, um, you know, has become more clear to me. Um, so on that side, on the other side, I think that um, I grew up, as I said, with this academic family and didn't really understand the power of the people who are the capital allocators um, in this world and the power of the people who, you know, they they are money managers for billion dollar, you know, uh, billion dollar endowments or um, huge PE funds. You know how that money gets allocated really is is a driver of so much of how our society functions and where we what we focus on. So, um, so I think like my awareness of who's controlling the purse strings um, in each in sort of the supply chain. You know, everything up from the startup gets money from me, the VC, but I have um, LPs, and my fundraise is, is a difficult fundraise. So understanding. Who are my limited partners giving me the money? And then where are those limited partners driving their money? And, you know, that's just the startup supply chain. But, you know, super interesting when you look at, you know, the multi-trillion dollar energy market or anything else, um, understanding where the capital is coming and going. Yeah.
2: Wow. Wow. Um, well, this has been fascinating. Uh so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Um, it is the energy of the person or thing for me. And, and it's not, I'm a high energy person and I don't mean that it's high energy. Um, I just mean it's, it's a positive energy. It's, um, I'm sitting here looking out my window at some trees, um, that have beautiful energy. Gosh, I sound so, I'm so like, I've spent two decades in San Francisco, um, um, but, but truly, I do think that the energy that people put out into the world is one of the things that attracts me to, you know, like a moth, like to, to someone who has incredible positive energy, and it doesn't need to be incredible high energy, but just the people who project peace. Um, that's what I'm drawn to.
2: Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything else that you're up to?
1: Sure. I'm uh, Minnie Ingersoll uh, on LinkedIn, probably is, is an easy place for people to connect directly. Um, and then I host my podcast where I talk with other VCs and um, I'm learning a lot from, from this show. I'm going to ask them more probing questions, but I'm talking to VCs about what they invest in, what they care about at um, LA Venture.
2: Cool. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
3: Small details or big surfaces, tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, There's a spray paint pattern that's just right because Rust-Oleum's new custom spray five-in-one gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom spray five-in-one only from Rust-Oleum.
4: Planning for your next trip?